So before I jump into today's message, I just want to remind all of you about an Easter outreach event that we are participating in on Wednesday, March the 31st. Here in our city of Ottawa, Canada, a number of people who have a real heart for reaching the lost, for seeing people come to know Jesus, have put together kind of an outreach evangelism team, and they meet together and they pray together and they seek God on how to reach more people here in our city and even in our nation and around the world for Jesus. Um, we have staff members here and even one of our teenagers from Fusion Youth are a part of that leadership team. So it's so exciting to see Capital Hope 21 going to take place on, again, March 31st at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This would be a great, great event because they're going to be talking about hope because there's been a lot of hopelessness and there's been a lot of confusion over the past 12 months of where we should put our hope. And so if you kind of would love, if you kind of have it on your heart to invite people to this, I want you to email our associate pastor of evangelism, Danielle. You can reach her at danielle at greenbelt.church. Email her and she can send you a specialized link to invite your friends and family. And what that link allows you to do is if one of your family members or one of your friends or one of your colleagues does accept Christ or wants to learn more about Jesus, we, the, the, the system is built in such a way that you'll, you'll know that, that it's one of your friends or families that want more information and you become a part of their discipleship process. You become a part of bringing them to Jesus instead of it being some committee or some other group of people that don't know these people. And so I just love the model of this. It helps all of us engage in the process of seeing people come to know Christ and to help them begin to take steps closer to him and to begin a discipleship journey with him in those relationships that we already have with our friends and family. So again, March 31st, put this on your calendar. It's a few days before the Easter weekend, and I know you'll be so blessed by inviting your friends and loved ones to this. So again, if you want to invite someone, get your specialized link, danielle at greenbelt.church. So today we are continuing our sermon series, King for All. We've spent the last two and a half, almost three months going through the gospel of Luke. And we're getting ready to wrap this series up. We're starting to get towards the end of it. And I'm really, really excited about the next sermon series that we're going to do after this. Because right after this, we've laid a really good foundation about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, how Jesus is the king for everybody, how Jesus calls us to live our lives. And then we're going to do another sermon series right after this, building on what we've learned together as a church family, looking at spiritual gifts and spiritual disciplines and how those two things play out together to accomplish this foundation that Jesus did. So I'm really excited to kick that series off in a few weeks. But today, I'm going to talk about a very, very familiar passage. It's a passage that we read and talk about as a church family almost monthly. But I am going to approach today's text in a way that's going to feel really weird. <laughs> And come on, by now you should expect that from me, right? <laughs> so we're going to look at this text here, very familiar text. But before I jump into the text, um, just kind of in the chat, just as we've been dealing with this pandemic over the past 12 months in the chat, 
just share and just be honest and real before one another. How many of you have really missed big family gatherings? <laughs> I know I have. You know, see, my family, actually, the family that I grew up in um, is very spread out all over the place. I got my mom and my stepdad who live in northern Ontario. I've got my dad who lives down in Toronto. I've got another a sister out in Kitchener. I have a sister who's down in the United States. I've got a brother in Montreal. So we're all very spread out. So we don't get together very often because of the distance that we that we live in. Um, but when we do get together, those meals are so special. Like just to come together as a large family with my siblings and their kids and and just seeing everyone all together in one place. And I love those times. Now, what's funny personally about me is I'm actually um, not a big crowd person. <laughs> I actually prefer more intimate meals. I prefer just getting together with one other couple or just a couple of other people so we can actually have more intimate conversation as friends or as a family. But there's something just special about these large gatherings, these big meals. And that's what I want to talk about today. We're going to look at a very famous passage, again, very familiar passage from Luke chapter 22, where Jesus shares a meal with his disciples. We're going to talk about the Last Supper. And the reason why today's message is going to be very weird is because I'm going to talk about the Last Supper, but we are not going to take communion together as a church. And for some of you, that might feel incredibly sacrilegious. <laughs> Are we, can we do that? Can we actually teach about the Last Supper without leading into communion? Well, I believe that we can. And thankfully, we are going to take communion together on Friday, Good Friday, April the 2nd at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be taking communion together as a church family then. But today, there's something really profound from this meal that I think is so so crucial for all of us to really notice, to really notice this as we look at Jesus being the king for all. And what does it mean for us to be followers of this king, especially in the world that we live in today? Now, as you go through Luke's gospel, you'll see that meals play an incredibly important role in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, in Luke's gospel, we can, find, we can see nine different times Jesus eating with people. One of them being the Last Supper, which we'll read in a few moments. And look at just, I just want to kind of go through some of these meals very quickly that Jesus has with people. Because in every single one of these meals, Jesus teaches some amazing things about who he is, about the kingdom of God, about the difference of having a real relationship with God or just trying to be religious to try to show off before people or to show off before God. Some of Jesus' deepest teaching, his most powerful conversations happened around the dinner table. Some of the meals that we see, well, I'm going to go list through the eight here. So let's just quickly look at some of these. One of the first meals we see is in Luke chapter five, where Matthew, the tax collector, Luke names him Levi, his Hebrew name, Levi, the tax collector, has Jesus in his home with a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And we see Jesus ministering there. 
We see a Pharisee in Luke chapter 7 invites Jesus to have dinner with him. And that's the very famous dinner where a woman comes in and in her tears washes the feet of Jesus with her tears and with her hair. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are disgusted by this woman and Jesus blesses her because she knows who she is and the forgiveness that she needs. We see the meal, the miracle of Jesus where he feeds thousands of people with just five loaves of bread and two fish from Luke chapter 9. We see Jesus and his disciples eating a meal in the home of Mary and Martha. And there's that tension of being with Jesus to learn from him or just working and striving and just being a busybody. We see another meal with another Pharisee where all the Pharisee is just so bent out of shape and so concerned that Jesus didn't follow his traditions of washing his hands in Luke chapter 11. And Jesus has to tell this Pharisee, it's not your hands that make your heart dirty. It's not your hands, the dirt on your hands that cause you to sin. It's the sin in your heart that causes you to sin. We see another meal with another Pharisee where Jesus noticed that the guests who were coming in were trying to get the best seat at the table. They were fighting to see who would get the seat of honor at the table. And Jesus talks about the least of these and humbling yourself. We see Jesus sharing a meal with two of his disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24. And we also see Jesus eating with all of his disciples in Jerusalem right before his ascension to heaven. Again and again and again around the table is where Jesus teaches some amazing and profound things about the kingdom of God. So today let's read the most famous of meals in the Gospels. We're going to talk about this event, and again, we're not going to talk about this meal from the perspective of taking communion together, which is obviously a very important part of this teaching, but there's something else that's happening at this meal that I think is crucial for each and every one of us to truly understand, to truly grasp it, to let it sink deep into our minds and to our hearts so that we can truly be men and women, boys and girls, who are celebrating next week the resurrection of the King of all. So I'm going to read here from Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to start reading in verse 7. So here in my Bible, the NIV, it categorizes this section as the Last Supper. So verse 7 starts, it says, And then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. And he replied, As you enter the city, so they've just come into Jerusalem. As you go into Jerusalem, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Just stop here for just a quick moment. What I love about this introduction to the Last Supper, again, it's this reminder that we see is that the words of Jesus are trustworthy, (laughs) 
The words of Jesus are trustworthy when he tells his disciples what they will see, what they will find, and then they go off. They actually find things, as Jesus says it will be. It was exactly like what we see when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he tells his disciples, you go in and you're going to find a baby donkey tied up over there. And then they go and they find things exactly like Jesus said it would be. The words of Jesus are trustworthy. Just a little side mini sermon for you there. But I think it's a great reminder for all of us. So they found everything just as Jesus had told them. They prepared the Passover. So when the hour came, Jesus and his his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Again, this is that very famous text that we read either from Luke's gospel or from one of the other gospels or from 1 Corinthians. We read these words to remember the body of Jesus broken for us. We remember the blood of Jesus spilled for us. That Jesus has come to usher in a new covenant. See, as Jesus has been going around doing his ministry all throughout the early parts of Luke's gospel, that's why he's constantly contrasting the repentant heart of a sinner and the hard heart of a self-righteous religious person. Constantly being contrasted because the old ways of thinking... This old covenant of work, 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 work in order to please God, ultimately what it accomplishes is self-righteousness. It causes judgment. It causes condemnation against those who are not able to strive the way I'm able to. Whereas humble humility, humble repentance shows all of humanity that we're all equal, Every single one of us, no matter how much money we make, no matter what country we come from, no matter what kind of job we have, our sinful nature puts all of us on an equal playing field with one another before a holy, righteous, all-loving, all-powerful God. And it teaches us humility. It teaches us to love one another. It teaches us to not judge each other and not to compare one another because of that contrite, repentant, humble heart. And that is why this new covenant, the shed blood of Jesus, is why Christianity is radically different than every other faith. Every other religion in the world is work, 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 work. And maybe God or the gods or your inner God or whatever that is will be pleased. But the teaching of Jesus is, God is pleased and he is pleased with humanity to send his son to shed his blood, to have his body broken 
for our sin. And that's why we're going to celebrate communion on Good Friday to remember the death of Jesus that made us whole, that brings us into that relationship with God the Father. But what's fascinating is that so often when we teach the Last Supper, when we read these words, we stop here. Like we stop in Luke 22, verse 20, because that's what we read in the Last Supper. But in Luke's gospel, the meal continues. And it doesn't continue in a new paragraph. It doesn't continue in a new section. In fact, the words of Jesus continue. It's the same conversation happening. So Jesus goes from talking about his blood. He goes talking about this blood that is poured out, this new covenant. Again, in verse 20, it says that this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Verse 21 continues the conversation. He says, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. He's saying in this conversation that here is the cup. Here's the cup that represents my blood spilt for the sins of humanity. And my hands on the table are sharing a table with someone who will betray me. Someone who's going to come against me. Someone who is so close to me that is sharing the most intimate of meals. And so what happens when the disciples hear that? Well, they get defensive. Their shoulders go up. They begin to argue, right? It says in verse 23, they began to question among them. Now, the Greek here for question among them, it's not like, hmm, I wonder who that is. Hmm, what do you think Jesus meant by that? It's not a quiet kind of friendly question. It's accusing questions. It's attacking questions. Like they're coming at each other here, right? This question among them about who it might be who would do this, who would do this horrible thing of betraying Jesus. They begin fighting among one another. So a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. (sighs) Here's Jesus talking about laying down his life of sacrificing himself, of his body broken, his blood spilt. And the disciples of Jesus take that teaching as an opportunity to quarrel, to dispute about who is the best. (laughs) Whose theology is right? Which church is doing things right? Which pastor is better? Who preaches better? What worship leader leads better? All of these disputes that we have in church world today. Thankfully, not our church, but in church world in general. We dispute. We dispute right after hearing about Jesus' sacrifice. About which person, who is the greatest And so Jesus sees this dispute and it continues in verse 25 says, Jesus said to them again, the same meal, (laughs) it's the same supper happening here. Jesus says the Kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. He's saying that the Lords of the Gentiles, the King of the Gentiles, they're so puffed up that they see themselves as a benefactor to these poor people, but really they're lording it over them and making their lives miserable. 
And then Jesus says, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? Because that's what Jesus talked about in one of these other meals when people were fighting for the best seat at the table. Because it shows that you're great and these servants that are serving you are not great. (laughs) Because they're servants. But Jesus has said, no, you, church, my disciples, you're servants. <laughs> you're servants. Because Jesus reminds them, but I am among you as one who serves. Like this gives us that picture from John's gospel where we get the picture of Jesus disrobing and washing the feet of his disciples before this meal. That the greatest person at the table, Jesus the Messiah, came to serve and not to be served. And Jesus continues, verse 28 says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then the story continues. Jesus talks about how Satan wants the disciples that Jesus that the that the devil is after the disciples to cut them out to stop this ministry that they're going to do one day and Peter says this will never happen to me because I'm with you and Jesus tells Peter no you're going to deny me Peter says never 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 and Jesus says yeah before the rooster crows you're going to deny me all in the same meal so there's something very crucial that is going on here I think something very, very crucial as we look at this meal here, I think the meal reminds us about the human nature that can so easily creep out of every single one of us. You see, this human nature that comes out of us in times of confusion, in times of frustration, in times of doubt, in times of hopelessness, in times of fear, There's a flesh nature, a human nature that wants to rise up and to come out of us. And so we see this play out. Jesus is talking about his death, talking about how he's going to be portrayed. The disciples of Jesus are not expecting him to die. They think they're coming into Jerusalem for Jesus to take over, to become the king. That's what they're looking forward to. That's what they did on Palm Sunday, the week before the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, is they had palm branches and Jesus coming into the city on a baby donkey. They're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. It's the king has come here and they're pumped and they're excited. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to suffer. No, I'm going to die. It's like, what? 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 And it leads to quarreling and it leads to disruption and it leads to questioning and all of this stuff. Now, I think there's something crucial about how the disciples react here to the teachings of Jesus. That's easy to miss because we don't tend to talk about this when we celebrate communion. If you think about this table, if we think about the 12 apostles and Jesus, if you need to think of a very famous painting to get that picture in your mind, go ahead and do that. But Jesus says, we're close here. Everyone's hands are on this table. I want you to think for a moment, and I want you to answer this question. How many people at that table 
are empowered by the Holy Spirit in that moment? Just think about that question. How many people at that moment in that meal are empowered by the Holy Spirit? Put it in the chat if you have the answer. One. It's Jesus. It's Jesus is the only person there who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, we read about that in Jesus' baptism way back early on in the gospel, where Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes on him physically in the presence of a dove. The heavens open up. The voice of the Father is heard. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus begins his ministry, his healing, his teaching, his discipling, his miracles, done through the power of the Holy Spirit in him. You see, the disciples don't receive the Holy Spirit until Acts chapter 2, another book in the New Testament written by Luke, because Luke continues the story. Luke chapter 2 in verses 1 to 4 is when we read about the disciples finally receiving that exact same power that Jesus has where the Holy Spirit comes on them, they begin to be be able to speak in other languages, and they begin to preach, and they begin to uh, heal and cast out demons, and they begin to to be empowered to do the very same things that Jesus did when he was here. So currently at that table, there's only one person indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Jesus. And so the big idea that I want to unpack a little bit for the remainder of our time together today is this. And I want you to listen closely to these words. The big idea today is don't compare yourself to the disciples at the table. Compare yourself to Jesus. Don't compare yourself to the disciples at the table. Compare yourself to Jesus. You see, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, the Bible tells us that the very same Holy Spirit that came on Jesus at his baptism, that came on the disciples at the day of Pentecost, that exact same Holy Spirit comes into us. That's why the Bible teaches that you are born again. Your old self dies and the new you is born. You are a new creation. You are a new humanity. You are a new family. And the Holy Spirit comes in you and you become the temple of the living God. The full glory and the presence of God is in you as a follower of Jesus. Over the last 15 years... (laughs) almost 16 years that I've been pastoring, I've really, really, really come to believe I think the worst thing that we can do as followers of Jesus is to compare ourselves to the disciples in the Gospels. I do. I firmly believe that the worst thing that you and I can do as followers of Jesus is to compare ourselves and to justify ourselves because of the attitude and the failures of the disciples in the Gospels. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say Peter. Peter, who sees Jesus walking on the water. 
And Peter, who gets all excited, Jesus, if it's truly you, call me to come out on the water as well. And then Peter comes out and he walks on the water. And then, but he sees the storm and he sees the waves and he panics and he instantly begins to sink. And Jesus has got to pick him up and says, oh, you of little faith. (laughs) What's your problem? So often what we do as disciples, we compare ourselves to Peter. We say, yeah, I mean, I fail God all the time. Yeah, I have a lack of faith all the time. I, you know, this kind of stuff happens to me all the time. Or again, another bad example of Peter. <laughs> Peter gets picked on a lot. Right? But even Peter denying Christ, saying, I don't know him, three times because of fear. And we use that to justify ourselves. Oh, well, you know, that's why I didn't invite someone to, you know, the Easter service. Or that's why I didn't invite someone to, you know, Capital Hope 21. Because I was afraid. I denied my faith. And, you know, and and we excuse ourselves. And I think it's the worst thing that we can do as disciples. Why? Because we're comparing ourselves to people who do not have the power of the Holy Spirit in them. Radical different comparison. You see, Scripture doesn't teach us that we are to become more like Peter. Scripture doesn't teach us that we're supposed to become more like Andrew or John or Bartholomew or any of the other apostles or even the apostle Paul. Scripture does not teach us that we are to become more like them. Scripture teaches us that we are to become more like Jesus. Because that same spirit that came on Jesus in his baptism and empowered him for ministry... That same spirit that came on the apostles in Acts chapter 2 is the same spirit in you. So we do not look at this story and compare ourselves to the apostles, to the disciples. We look at this story and we compare ourselves to Jesus. That's the question that I wrestle with. That's the question that you and I have to answer because the Last Supper reminds us that because of the broken body of Christ, because of the spilt blood of Jesus, you and I have been given a new nature. And yes, in this flesh, on this side of eternity, we will live in the battle of the new nature and the flesh that we live in. Absolutely. It does not mean that we will not stumble. It does not mean that we will not sin. But it doesn't give us permission to justify our stumbling and justifying our sin or even accepting and just living with our stumbles and living with our sin. Because we have this new nature. And the disciples at this meal are not living by their new nature. They're living by their old sinful selves. So quickly... If we are to not compare ourselves to the disciples at the table, but we should be comparing ourselves to Jesus, I want to just look at two quick things that we can see from this text that help us see what a life looks like when it's being lived out of this new nature. So that you and I can look at our lives, not through the lens of the disciples, but through the lens of Jesus. Because we have that new nature. We have that Holy Spirit in us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have that power accessible to us. So what does life look like when it's lived out of the new nature? Well, the first thing that we see is that it is a life that serves. It is a life that serves. In verses 24 to 27 here of Luke 22, right? This is what Jesus talks about. He talks about this idea of serving, right? The king of the Gentiles lorded over them. 
Those who exercise authority call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Right? The greatest among you should be like the youngest. You know, the, the one who rules like the one who serves. Like This is a call for all followers of Jesus, not just a few. See, it's not a call that mm, in church I can just come and I can just consume and I can just get what I want and take what I want while the staff, while the pastor, the associate pastors, the elders, the life group leaders, while they serve me. No, 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 no. <laughs> I know for a long time in church history, we've done that. We've put up these holy men and these holy women, and we made them kind of the, the pinnacle of Christian service, and everyone else just participated and just kind of consumed. Um, but that deviated from the mission of Jesus. That was never the plan. <laughs> Is All of us as the body of Christ are called to serve We serve not through our own strengths, not through our own abilities, but through the power given to us by the Holy Spirit. We don't lord our position over anyone. I'm the pastor and I'm better than everyone. No, I know my Bible better than anyone. No, we're called to love. We're called to live in humility. We're called to use our gifts, our passions, our talents, our abilities, our resources as servants of God, to love on the people of God, to reach the lost for the glory of God. Not to lord it, not to condemn, not to rule, but to serve. I think one of the biggest challenges of the pandemic has been for so many Christians, we've not known how to serve in this season of ministry. And I get it because it's been so radically different for the past 11 months or 12 months now. And, you know, like when church is familiar and we've got our programs that run on Sunday, the programs that run during the week, just that normal ministry machine of Sunday morning requires a certain number of volunteers. In fact, like in our services on a Sunday morning with three services, two in English and one in Arabic, each and every week, we need about 40 to 50 people serving and using their gifts in order to accomplish that. Now, moving everything online has drastically reduced the number of volunteers, the number of ways to serve, but it's not an excuse to not serve. Just because it's different right now, and I really feel that one of the reasons I think Christians are feeling so antsy right now a year into this is because we haven't been serving and we don't know what to do. (laughs) We've got these spiritual gifts in us. We've got the Holy Spirit in us and we haven't figured out how to serve. And maybe we've gotten a little too comfortable in our pajamas and we've become maybe a little complacent and lazy. And so we put our hands on the table looking for what I'm going to get from God on the table. But Jesus reminds us that's not the call. That's not what living out of our new nature looks like. And sure, ministry looks different right now, but it's not an excuse to not serve. It's not an excuse to not use your gifts to be a blessing to other people. Yes, it may be challenging on learning how to do that right now, But that's a part of the fun. (laughs) At least it has been for me this past year. of How do I still use my gifts to be a blessing to people? How can I still love and serve in humility in this season? And I think that's an important thing for all of us 
in this season. So if you've been feeling antsy this year and frustrated this year, it might be because you're not serving and you're not blessing. And my challenge for you then today would be to seek God on that, to not give in to that sinful nature, not to give in to your flesh, but to lean into that new nature, to trust the spirit of God, to reveal that to you and how you can be a blessing to people whether it's your neighborhood, whether it's your school, whether it's the the school of your kids, whether it's at a life group, whether it's serving online, whatever that is for you, find ways to serve people. And I guarantee you'll feel better. (laughs) Because when you and I make our Christian faith about us and what we get, we'll never be blessed. Because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. (laughs) So we need to find ways to live life that serve because that is our call in our new nature. And then the second way that we can see what does life look like when we live out of our new nature is that we see that we have a life devoted to God's kingdom. We have a life devoted to God's kingdom, right? So if when we compare ourselves to the disciples, what do we see the disciples doing at this meal? We see them arguing and disputing on who is the greatest, and and we can make fun of that. It's very easy to make fun of that. All oh, those silly disciples, look at them going again, talking about who's the greatest when Jesus is in the room. And we make fun of that. But when we really search our hearts, when I really search my heart, there is something in our sinfulness. There is something in that flesh that does this. <laughs> we do compare ourselves to other people. We do compare ourselves to things that we see on social media. We do compare ourselves to other churches. And for the past 12 months, I have been so on guard in my heart on that, to repent of that quick, to seek apology on that quick, because it's not about me and my kingdom. You see, when you begin to argue on who's the one who's going to betray Jesus, you're wor- the disciples here are worried about them. They're not worried about Jesus. They're worried about their reputation. Who could do such a horrible thing? Who's going to be kicked out of the club? <laughs> They're not worried about Jesus dying. They're worried about them, their reputation, their position, their finances, their life. And you and I can so easily gravitate to that as well. We look at our position in life our position at work, how well I'm doing at school. What's my role in the church? Am I seen as important? It happens. We become, if we're not careful, we become very me-focused. But if we make the shift in our heart to compare ourselves to Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, when we lean into that, then suddenly we become way, 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 way more concerned about the kingdom of God, about God's plans for the world. We become more caring for the least of these. We become more caring about people who are far from God. We don't worry about justifying ourselves. We don't worry about proving that we're right to people and, and, and arguing with people and convi- convincing them with our wisdom and with our knowledge. We love on them as servants and we lead them into the kingdom of God with the same heart as Jesus. <laughs> Through that power that is in us. <laughs> And Jesus says, when you seek first God's kingdom, 
all the other things in life get taken care of. So yes, it's okay to worry about your job. It's okay to worry about your kids. It's okay to worry about your grades. Actually, Jesus says, don't worry. Wrong word. It's okay to work on those things. Don't worry about it. But it's okay to work on those things. They're not bad things. But if you seek first God's kingdom and God's will and God's plan for your life, then those other things will be taken care of because we're putting our priorities straight. That is what... Uh, living out of our new nature looks like. It's a life that serves and it's a life devoted to the kingdom of God. The big idea again is don't compare yourselves to the disciples at the table, but compare yourself to Jesus. You see, Jesus is a king who shares his power. (laughs) See, Jesus declares that when we come to him, we become co-heirs of the kingdom of God. And what that means is Jesus, as the son of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, that we, as children of God, we become co-heirs. And so the inheritance of God's kingdom becomes ours. We're all equal in our sin, and we're all equal in the kingdom of God. All brothers and sisters, and Jesus is a king who shares his power. And he gives all glory to God the Father. And so that same Holy Spirit that came on Jesus, that empowered Jesus, Jesus, when he ascended back to heaven, he sent that Holy Spirit to come into you. Jesus came to die for your sin and to give you a power so that you could live an abundant life today. And maybe for you today, you've never chosen that power. Maybe you believe in Jesus, maybe you, you've heard about Jesus, or maybe this is all brand new to you. But whatever that is for you today in the past, I want you to know that today is a new day. <laughs> that you can actually live out of the same power that Jesus lived out of. Not by being religious, not by keeping rules and traditions, not by trying to force yourself to be a good girl or a good boy, <laughs> but by simply submitting your heart to him. By simply praying something so simply like, God, forgive me, a sinner. Forgive me that my heart has been far from you, that I've been trying to be good in my own strength. I've been trying to look good in front of people in my own strength. I have argued with people about my own position in the world. And today, God, I submit to you. Forgive me of my sin. Send your Holy Spirit to come into me. And make me new. I give you my life. Make me yours. And if you pray that prayer today, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit has come in you. You might feel different or you might feel exactly the same. doesn't matter what you feel right now in this moment, but trust the teachings of Jesus because his words are reliable that you are now a new creation. And if you prayed that today, I would love if you would just click that button that shows up in the chat. I would love to follow up with you, get some free resources to you to help you on this new journey of walking with Jesus by his power and his strength. Because again, don't read the Gospels. Don't go through the Gospel of Luke comparing yourself to the failures of the disciples. Let's fast forward a little bit. Let's read how Luke ends. Let's start reading the book of Acts. Let's start reading the writings of Paul and see how through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church truly lives out of our new nature. 
that we live a life of service, that we live a life of seeking the kingdom of God for God's glory. Because that is what will bring us true joy, living out of our true nature. So let's pray together. together. Father God, I praise you and thank you for the reminders that come from the teachings of Jesus during the Last Supper. And yes, we remember the body of Jesus broken for us. We remember his spilt blood for us, that new covenant that makes us new. But God, you also paint a picture for us in um, this uh, retelling of the Last Supper that if we're not careful, we could put ourselves into the position of disciples and, and worry about things that we shouldn't be worried about, living out of uh, a sinful nature that we shouldn't be living out of anymore. Because of the broken body of Jesus, the spilt blood of Jesus, we have this new nature because of the Holy Spirit in us. So, Father, forgive me. Forgive our church when we have lived out of our sinful nature more than out of the power of our new nature. Forgive me when I have questioned and disputed. Forgive our church when we have questioned and disputed. God, help each and every one of us, every boy, every girl, every man, every child who have put their faith in Jesus, who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit in them, to seek out a life of service, to seek out a life of putting your kingdom first, and that, God, that you would be glorified by that, and that you would bring much joy into our church family as we live out our calling as the new creation in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.